Let's return to John's Gospel in the first chapter, John chapter 1. We will continue our slow progress to the prologue, but I promise you, Lord willing, when we get to chapter 2, we will speed things up a bit. There's just so, so much more that we have to deal with here. As we look again at John's prologue, let us consider two fundamental realities in our universe. If you were to peer out into space, especially with the aid of a modern telescope, you can see one of two things, light and darkness. Everything we can see out there in those vast recesses of space is delivered to our eyes by the medium of light. Otherwise, you see nothing but darkness. In those vast, black, empty regions of space, stars are grouped together in what are called galaxies. Galaxies consist of billions of stars of various sizes and hues. Our own Milky Way galaxy consists of approximately 200 billion stars, and it revolves like a giant spindle. The width of an an average galaxy is 600,000 trillion miles. The average distance between galaxies is 20 million trillion miles. And those are really, really big numbers. So big, in fact, that we have trouble comprehending them. So how do we just process these numbers in a meaningful way? Well, the answer is to think in terms of light years. But even light years are difficult to fathom. A light year is how far light travels in one year at a speed of 186,000 miles per second. So how far is that? The Earth's circumference at the equator is 24,901 miles. If you traveled at 186,000 miles per second, light would move around the equator nearly seven and a half times in one second. In one minute, light would travel around the equator 448 times. In eight minutes, light would travel from Earth to the sun, or from the sun to Earth. And how long do you suppose it would take at that speed to reach our nearest star? It would actually take, are you ready for this? Four years. Four years, Proxima Centauri is 23 million million miles away. If you could travel at a speed where you could move around the planet at seven and a half times every second, go at that speed, it would take you four years to reach the closest star in our galaxy. To put that in perspective, traveling at light speed, you would circle the Earth 26,890 times in one hour. 
And if you did that 35,040 times, you would arrive at our neighboring star. And just how large are those stars out there? Our sun is enormous compared to the earth. In elementary school, our teacher made a model of the solar system using various painted styrofoam balls. And I recall that the sun was merely the largest ball, kind of like the size of a basketball relative to a marble. Well, in reality, the sun contains 99.86% of the mass of our entire solar system. We've taken all the other planets, all right, including the Earth, the sun is 99.86% of the mass. It is estimated that some 1.3 million planet Earths could fit inside our sun, and our sun is just a medium-sized star. Mu Cephei is a bright red supergiant in the Milky Way galaxy. It is 1,650 times larger than our sun, and it shines 38,000 times brighter. It is, in fact, so large that if it replaced the sun at the center of our solar system, its edge would extend beyond the orbit of Jupiter. It's that big. And Musifi is not even the largest star in our galaxy. The sun's surface burns at 10,000 degrees Fahrenheit. Temperatures in the sun's core reach an estimated 27 million degrees. According to NASA, you would have to explode 100 billion tons of dynamite every second to match the energy output of our sun. And that energy output lights our planet and warms our planet each and every day. Now, friends, let's just travel for a moment beyond our galaxy. Traveling at light speed, seven and a half times around the Earth in one second, it would take 100,000 years to traverse an average-sized galaxy from one edge to the other. The Andromeda galaxy, which is our closest neighboring galaxy, is 2 million light years away. In other words, if we were to travel at 186,000 miles per second, it would take us 2 million years to get there. And there are 100,000 million galaxies that can be seen using modern telescopes. The famous Hubble Deep Field shows an image of galaxies that are 13.5 to 14 billion light years away. This image was captured over the course of 10 days back in December of 1995. And the image actually zooms in on 124 millionth of the night sky. I'm told that if you took a tennis ball and put it out there at 100 meters distance, and then zoomed into that tennis ball, take that little pixel of the night sky, that's the Hubble Deep Field. And when they open it up and look inside, there are some 3,000 galaxies in one little pixel of the night sky. 
And astronomers believe that if we pointed our telescopes in any direction out there, we would find the same thing. Ultimately, friends, there are billions upon billions of glittering galaxies out there comprising billions and billions of burning lights. And there is unfathomable darkness. That's what space looks like. There are two fundamental realities in our universe. Light and darkness. And it's precisely these two realities that feature so prominently in John's Gospel. In his prologue, John introduces Jesus with three highly significant terms. The logos, the life, and the light. Jesus, the logos, breathed into the darkness. And when he breathed, his breath lit up all those burning galaxies pirouetting through space. And Jesus, the Logos, and the life, and the light, has penetrated into the darkness of planet Earth. The light of a trillion galaxies has walked among us. Friends, every proton, every electron, every neutron, every fiery atom burning at 27 million degrees in the interior of a star was breathed out by the Logos, was lit by the Logos. The life that animates our entire planet from microbial life to the extraordinarily complex human brain was breathed out by Jesus, the source of all life. This Trinitarian reality of the Logos, the life and the light, friends, is indeed the foundation of all creation. And he walked among us. Now, moving forward in his prologue, John puts a decided emphasis on the third term. The light. The light of all those billions of galaxies has become flesh and lives among us. Now last week we met John the Baptist. This was Jesus' forerunner. And John the author clarified that while John was a witness to the light, John was not the light. Let's reread verses 6 through 8. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. And here is a clarification. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. Friends, when you know Jesus' true identity as the Logos, the life, and the light, it seems perfectly absurd that anyone would confuse John with Jesus. There is simply no comparison. John could not breathe out one fiery atom, much less the entire universe. To confuse an ordinary man with the supreme creator of the universe would be a tragedy of enormous proportions. But 
what if indeed the creator of the universe deliberately presented himself as an ordinary man? Jesus, in fact, would have resembled John. They were Jews of the same age. They were related by blood. Culturally, they had many similarities. And last week, we discovered their preaching was nearly identical. And Herod and many others did indeed confuse John the Baptist with Jesus. The creator of all galaxies did indeed present himself to the world in the most humble, meek, and ordinary way possible. John himself, as we discovered last week, was totally unimpressive. Look at his clothing. Look at his diet. And people confused Jesus, the creator, with John. Indeed, people did mistake Jesus for John the Baptist, not because John was so great, but because Jesus was so humble. That really is the beauty and the paradox of the incarnation. We dare not suggest that men men become gods. That is a veritable blasphemy. Nevertheless, God became human such that people confused him with an ordinary man. And to deny the incarnation is indeed blasphemy. That's the beauty of it. Now, friends, if John was not the light, then where is the true light? That's the question that John answers in verses 9 through 13. And he explains how people responded to that true light. So verse 9, the true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Now, John obviously does not name Jesus Christ by his proper name in these verses. But it becomes immediately apparent as you read John's gospel that Jesus is indeed the light coming into the world. The themes of light and darkness, rejection and reception, the themes of new birth and rejection are really all dynamic components of Jesus' ministry And even right here in chapter 1, Jesus is named several times with several titles as the object of the prologue. So indeed, Jesus is the true light of verse 9 that John gave witness to. So let's consider then Jesus as the true light coming into our world. I have previously pointed out that John's gospel is rooted back there in the creation account. Whereas Matthew got, Matthew's gospel begins with Abraham, Luke's gospel begins with Adam, 
John's gospel, back in verse 1, takes us all the way back to the very beginning. In the beginning. And the parallels continue. Genesis describes an initial world that is full of darkness. Genesis 1 and verse 2 relates darkness was over the face of the deep. And John's gospel also describes a world that is just full of darkness. John 1 and verse 5, the light shines in the darkness. John 3 and verse 19, people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. John 8 and verse 12, whoever walks with me will not walk in darkness. John 12 and verse 35, the light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. John 12 and verse 46, I have come into the world as light, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. Clearly, light and darkness are major themes running right through the gospel. The Genesis account also describes an initial creation of light at the very beginning. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God never intended for the creation to be shrouded in complete darkness ever again. God gave us light for both night and day, although they differ significantly in quality. But here is how Genesis puts it. God made two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser night to rule the night, and the stars. And God set them, he set them out there in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth. Friends, God gave us the sun. God gave us the moon. And God gave us all those burning galaxies as pirouetting their way through space so that we would never live in complete darkness. If you've ever been spelunking through a cave and had your guide turn off the light, you understand just how unnerving darkness can really truly be. You cannot see your hand two inches in front of your face. It's really unnerving. The darkness feels like an enormous weight. It's oppressive. It's like, someone, please turn on the light. And spiritually speaking, that is the condition of our world apart from the light of Jesus Christ. It is oppressive. The darkness is very dark. And that's why in verse 9, it is so critical that we embrace Jesus as the true light coming into the world. Apart from him, friends, all is darkness. And when we embrace Jesus as a light in a dark place, what happens to our world In fact, what is the destiny of all creation? Would you just listen for a moment as I read from the last chapter of the Bible? Revelation 22. Here we have a description of Jerusalem and the new creation. Listen to this. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it. For the glory of God gives it light. And its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk. All those nations that are going to be redeemed will walk in the light of the Lamb. And the kings of the earth will bring their glory 
into that great city. Jesus resurrected with all authority over all nations, and he is going to see to it that those nations bring their glory into that lit city, lit by the radiance of God, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They, the nations, will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations. Friends, the true light that shines so brightly that the sun and the moon might as well just fade away into oblivion, that true light is Jesus. And I'm not even sure how this really works. This last week I had a conversation with a physicist. I said, what, is this all, what does this mean? He says, I don't know, it's really cool. All right. Apparently the, not the light of the New Jerusalem isn't this distant fireball that just hurls rays of light uh, across the earth and casting shadows in its wake. It's not how it works. Apparently, Jesus' light just emanates from within and above and underneath. His light just infuses and shines through every atom of the new creation. Physicists speak of our universe being permeated everywhere by dark energy or dark matter. They're not even sure what that is. But I picture the new creation as just being permeated everywhere, everywhere you turn, by light energy and light matter glowing and humming through all the atoms of the new creation. Light is just everywhere in the new world. Jesus came, friends, then to introduce this light of the new creation into the darkness of our present world. Now, friends, notice that John writes in verse 9 that that wonderful, glorious light has come to everyone. Now, look at this verse and see if you understand it. Verse 9, the true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. Well, what does that mean? Does that phrase actually trouble you? In what sense is Jesus the light that's given to everyone? Does that mean that all people embrace the light? Well, John will later say in chapter 3 and verse 19, people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. So it doesn't seem to mean that. So in what sense is Jesus the light that is given to everyone? Well, let me give you three possibilities. Three possibilities. One possibility is that John is suggesting a link between Jesus as special revelation and the general revelation that all men receive at all times. And let me unpack them. General revelation is God's disclosure of himself to all people at all times through creation. And Psalm 1 certainly describes God's revelation of himself through all nature, and in particular, through light. Listen to these words. Consider the sun, moon, and stars in their galaxies. The heavens, the psalmist says, declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims His handiwork. 
day-to-day pours out speech. The sun is pouring out speech right now. And night-to-night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the ends of the world. In them has He set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens, and its circuit to the end of them. And there is nothing hidden from its heat. That's how the psalmist describes the light of general revelation, which all men have access to all the time. The light of the heavenly bodies just burns right through the passage. The sun, moon, and stars just daily pour out knowledge of the Creator to all creation. So think of it this way. The revelation of God speaking through all nature out there, through the sun, to the moon, to the stars, through all those galaxies, becomes embodied and comes into the world through the incarnation of Jesus Christ. If that's the case, then read verse 39 as follows. The true light, that is the light of general revelation, the true light which gives light to everyone, what is that? General revelation gives light to everyone. Everyone sees it. The true light of general revelation which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. All that light, all that revelation in the universe is embodied in the person of Jesus Christ. Hebrews indeed tells us that special revelation culminates in Jesus of Nazareth. But friends, we could also say that general revelation culminates in Jesus. It all points to him. So that is one possible way to understand the phrase which gives light to everyone. We dare not distinguish so rigidly between general and special revelation that we forget that they are both sourced in God. A second possibility is that the everyone of verse 9 is not every man without exception, but every man without discrimination. In other words, John does not claim every man in the world has actually embraced Jesus as the light coming to the world. We know that doesn't happen. Rather, John claims the light of Jesus does not discriminate. It is available to anyone who wishes to embrace it. Jesus' gospel is not merely a gospel for the Jews or for Americans for the rich, or for the poor. Anyone who wishes just to come right out into the light may come into the light. Now this understanding does seem to make sense of verses 10 and 11, where John seems to make a distinction between Gentiles and Jews. The world at large rejected him, and his own people rejected him. But either way, The light of Jesus is available. Whether you're a Gentile, whether you're a Jew, he does not discriminate. Come to the light. And a third possibility is that the true light affects the whole world, whether or not the whole world embraces the light. 
Augustine gave an illustration of a town with a single teacher. Even if the whole town cannot sit in the classroom, the influence of the teacher permeates the whole town. Likewise, the teachings of Jesus have spilled over into the whole world and have affected the whole of human history. Yaroslav Pelikan, who was a professor at Yale, has written, regardless of what anyone personally may think or believe about him, Jesus of Nazareth has been the dominant figure in the history of Western culture for 20 centuries. If it were possible with some sort of super magnet to pull out every scrap of that history, every, every out of that history, every scrap of metal, bearing at least a trace of his name, how much would be left? And Pelican's focus, of course, is on Western history. More recently, scholarship has shown that Jesus' influence in the East has been absolutely enormous. In fact, there were more likely more Christians east of Jerusalem in the Middle Ages than there were west of Jerusalem. Jesus has changed the whole history of the world, whether or not you embrace him. Even our calendars are oriented around his death. And friends, there is no reason that we should not embrace all three interpretations because they're all true. They're all true. So Jesus comes as the true light. Well, then what sort of reception does he receive? To get at that question, we need to define the term world in verses 9 and 10. The Greek term is the term cosmos. The term cosmos can indeed refer to the whole created order out there. Cosmology refers to the origin of all things, the entire universe. But cosmos also can have a much narrower meaning. And you see something of that right there in verse 10. Let's read it together. He was in the world, in the cosmos. And that would seem to be a reference to the whole created order. And the cosmos was made through him. Again, that seems to be the whole creation. But keep reading. Yet the cosmos, the world, did not know him. And that last reference surely just narrows our attention on one dimension of creation specifically on humanity. Humanity did not know him. The cosmos that did not know him must be the human cosmos. Intelligent creatures with the capacity for knowledge. We wouldn't say the moon or the tree. They didn't know him or worship him. We were talking about human beings with a capacity for knowledge. So Jesus came into the world, into his cosmos, into creation, but even more specifically, he came into human creation, into human history. He entered human culture and human civilization. When John uses the term cosmos elsewhere, he often refers to the specifically human dimension of the cosmos, human affairs. And, in, and, in, and even more specifically, he refers to humanity in a state of rebellion. 
For instance, in John 8, Jesus finds himself in a debate with the Pharisees who oppose his message as the light of the world. And Jesus says to them, you will die in your sin. And then he adds, you are of this cosmos. You are of this world. I am not of this world. Or in John 9, after Jesus was opposed for healing the blind man, he proclaimed, for judgment I came into this world that those who do not see may see and those who see may become blind. Or in John 14, Jesus refers to the world rejecting the Holy Spirit, even the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees Him nor knows Him. Friends, it is, it is this sense of humans in a state of rebellion that John has in mind here in verse 10 when he says the world did not know Him. They rejected the light. New Testament scholar C.K. Barrett, Barrett writes, God's love is to be admired not because the world is so big, but because the world is so bad. Friends, it's that latter cosmos, the cosmos of human rebellion that Jesus just reaches out to in love. And of course, that will spill over eventually into the restoration of the entire cosmos. But he has come to reach fallen human beings. Now in verse 11, John turns our attention apparently to the Jews. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. This can possibly be translated, he came to his own house. He certainly came to his own people. He came to his own kinsmen. And they did indeed reject Jesus. In the time that I've pastored here, we have worked through both Matthew's gospel and the the epistle to the Romans. And it's curious, isn't it, that both of those books give a lot of attention to the Jewish rejection of Jesus. Matthew's gospel oftentimes reads like a polemic. That's just written against the Jews who rejected and despised their Messiah. Likewise, if you recall the content of Romans 9 through 11, Paul spent three chapters explaining how to think about his own kinsmen according to the flesh who rejected Jesus. So yes, indeed, he comes to his own and his own people do not accept him. Nevertheless, if you recall, there was good news in Matthew and there was good news in Romans. Not all Jews rejected him. And in fact, many Gentiles also came to embrace Jesus. And verse 12 then really confirms that good news. There were those who, in the words of verse 12, did receive him. They did receive him. Who believed in his name. And what happens to those kinds of people? What happens to you and me when we embrace the light? Well, keep reading and notice these delightful words. He gave the right to become the children of God. We are perhaps so familiar with that language, we don't stop to really appreciate it. We have the right to become children of God. When you believe, you are given a new birthright. 
when you embrace the light, you now have the birthright to call God your Father. Quite literally, you become children of God. Paul's word for this in Romans is adoption. When we adopted Asher, he was instantly entitled to everything, and I do mean everything, that my two biological children are entitled to from their parents. We treat him no differently. Jesus said, What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? What kind of father would do this? If he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? His point is that children have every right to expect their father will treat them with love and care and provide for them their daily needs. You better believe God's going to do that for you. And friends, we do not treat Asher any differently than our other two. We do not give our biological children favor that we deny Asher. We simply wouldn't do that. That's not how God thinks about you. Asher's decree of inter-country adoption from the People's Republic of China is in fact irrevocable. There is no going back on it. His name will never change back. He is a cook for as long as he lives. And as far as the governments of both China and the United States are concerned, he was born, he was born Asher Wren Cook. Did you know that when you have adopted children, they get a new birth certificate? A birth certificate with their new family names printed on them. As if that old life never existed. You are born into a new family. That's adoption. Asher has all the same aunts and uncles and cousins and grandparents that my biological children have. And he is equally an heir with his siblings to his father's inheritance, even though it's not very large. <laughs> Paul calls it, friends, the spirit of adoption by whom we cry, Abba, Father. So friends, think of it this way. God the Father thinks of you the way that he thinks of his own son, Jesus Christ. You have every right to call on God and claim your family inheritance. When you see Jesus praying to his Father, what does that mean for you then when you go and you pray to your heavenly Father? You're in the same family. You have been born again. To embrace the light is to be a child of God. Now, friends, John is really going to develop this whole notion of being born again, as you probably realize, when we get to chapter 3. That's where he's really going to develop it. But verse 13, at least, just gestures in that direction. Verse 13, who were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. All of us came into this world the same way. We have biological blood relationships to our parents, our biological parents. We were the result 
of a one flesh relationship. All of us are, in one sense, the result of human decision. That's That's what he's referring to here, the will of the flesh. But God has determined that we can indeed be born again. And the phrase, but of God, at the end of verse 13, qualifies who were born. You were born of God. Now, how does that connect to the light? In the original creation, the earth was without form and void. And God's first act was to create light. Even before he brought forth the plants and trees and birds and animals and human beings, he created light We cannot survive without light. Light is utterly foundational to all life on the planet. But likewise, light is foundational to the new creation. Notice the connection in verse 9 between the true light and ultimately verse 13 being born again. Without light, all cellular life, all plant, animal, and human life would perish No light, no life. And likewise, without the true light, there can be no second birth. No new creation, no light, no life. That's what he's saying. No light, no life. Jesus was the source of light that brought the whole old creation into existence. And Jesus is the glorious source of light that lights the whole new creation. So friends, to embrace Jesus as the light of the world, the creator of all those galaxies, is to embrace the light of the new creation. And to embrace Jesus as the light is to become a child of God. 